and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquat-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Michael Tomasello of the Department of Developmental and Comparative Psychology at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology discusses his article for the 2013 Annual Review of Psychology titled Origins of Human Cooperation and Morality. In this lecture, he discusses how chimpanzees and toddlers collaborate, showing that while cooperation exists among other primates, it is much more developed in our societies, even among very young humans. Children have a stronger sense of egalitarianism and do a better job of suppressing their self-interest when they cooperate on a task. Not only that, they are capable of demonstrating norm-based group-mindedness, another form of collaboration. From an evolutionary point of view, morality is a form of cooperation. For both morality and cooperation, we can have individuals sacrificing themselves for others, sometimes called altruism, or cooperating with others and treating each other as equal individuals in a cooperation where they work together and divide the spoils at the end. Our nearest primate relatives, in this case a chimpanzee, um, will help one another in some circumstances. So as you can see in this video, um, this first chimpanzee is pulling at the door trying to get into the room. There's some food in there behind the tire. Now you can see the chain. The chain leads into a separate room and here comes another individual who can release the door and he does. He releases the chain and the first individual gets the food. So the first individual is getting nothing out of it. He's going to a small amount of effort to open the door for the other one. He's helping him. Uh, importantly, chimpanzees do not do this if the helper has a chance to get food or if it requires too much work. So they only do it in circumstances where they're not having to sacrifice too much. Okay, now let's look at collaboration. Here's a task where chimpanzees need to pull in this board together. If one of them just pulls the rope, it comes through the hooks and it doesn't work. So they need to pull simultaneously uh, for it to work together. And so here you can see comes the first chimpanzee and she will come to the rope and she knows uh, not to pull it. She inhibits pulling it. She goes and gets her partner, already pretty amazing, and they pull in together. But notice that they each have their own food. Each of them has food on their end of the board, so they don't have the problem of dividing up the spoils of their collaboration. And so they do quite well. Now, in the second variation, here comes the same individual doing the same thing and going to get her partner in the same way, but now the food is in the middle of the board and they have the problem of how to divide it up. And you can see one chimp is reluctant to pull, the other one pulls quite vigorously and then takes all the food at the end. So on the very next trial, the first chimpanzee just quits cooperating. There's nothing in it for her. There's, um, so. This is a very strong constraint on their collaborative problem solving is they have trouble dividing the spoils at the end. Let me just show you some children um, doing the same task. 
Here they will come in, and this time the food is in the middle. It's, it's trivial when the food is on either end, so I'm going to just show the time where it's in the middle. Here they come. They have little bowls for their gummy bears. And now they're both going to pull. There are four gummy bears in the middle of the board. You can barely see them there. Now, interestingly, the first child comes over, kind of like the dominant chimp, and starts to take some, but he doesn't take all of them. He only takes one, actually. And then the other child comes over and starts to take a three, and he says no. The first one says no, and they work it out so that now this, this second child here takes two, the first child takes his two, and they've divided them equally. So not only do they divide them equally in this case, they trust that they can work it out in future cases, and they continue to cooperate over time in a way that the chimpanzees uh, did not. So they've solved the problem of dividing the spoils in such a way that everybody stays incentivized to continue. Um, in the paper, we survey a lot of evidence of um, uh, chimpanzee societies or great ape societies in general, in particular chimpanzees, and human societies in general, particularly forager societies, more societies that aren't quite as complicated as modern industrialized societies. And you can see from the table uh, that's actually not in the paper, but it summarizes the paper, uh, that in every domain, in subsistence uh, activities, um, apes are mainly individual foragers, humans are cooperative foragers, um, chimpanzees and other apes um, um, uh, only go for individual possession when they've actually got it in their hands. Humans have property, regimes of property where everyone respects everyone else's property. Um, in, in politics, as it were, is dominated in great ape societies by dominance, and in humans we have various ways to control individuals that are too dominant. Humans have norms and institutions for morality such as law and uh, religion, and chimpanzees and other great apes do not have those kinds of things. So on the surface, a huge difference between um, great ape societies and human societies is the amount of cooperation involved and the way that cooperation structures many of the most important activities. And this little, these little comparisons of chimpanzees and human children is meant to show that cooperative spirit at work in very simple activities with very young children. So we have a, an evolutionary proposal that um, there are two steps in uh, the evolution of human cooperation, and the key concept here is going to be interdependence. That whereas other great apes mainly go about their business individually, they live in groups, but they do much of the, what they do individually, and in particular they forage for food individually. They travel in small groups, but then when they get there, they scramble for the food, and they each um, acquire the food on their own and eat it on their own. So one of the things that happened that started humans down this path toward being ultra-cooperators is that they had to collaborate with one another in order to get food. So now they are interdependent. I depend on you, you depend on me. Um, this means that I have a direct interest in your well-being because we're going to collaborate and you're having trouble. Well, I'm not going to be successful on my own. I have to stop and help you. If I have an eye toward the future, if you're having, if you're hungry tonight and I'm anticipating that we're going 
hunting tomorrow, then I need to make sure you get enough food tonight so you'll be in good shape for tomorrow's hunt. So when we're interdependent, it comes naturally to individuals to help one another, to help those on whom they depend. And this is what got things started. Obviously, human helping and altruism go beyond that now, but at the very first instance, you had a direct interest in the well-being of your partners. In addition, interdependence gives all individuals a certain amount of power because they have partner choice. So if you and I go hunting, we kill a deer together, and then you grab all the meat and push me away, I will not be choosing you for a partner tomorrow. And depending on how communication is, I can go back and tell all my friends in the camp about it, and they won't choose you either. And so people who are not cooperative, individuals who are not cooperative, get shunned and left out of the cooperative activity. So to be a member of this interdependent, collaborative foraging society or group, as it were, um, you must be cooperative or you'll be left out of the game. Uh, so that's the sort of, sort of first step that we propose, and it's based on second personal relations, that is, individuals. What I have experienced with you, what I have committed myself to do with you, and it's not about group-wide norms. It's not about rules about how one should behave in general. It's about particular interactions with others. And our second step is now getting to this more widespread culture and norms where our proposal is that as human groups start getting bigger and you don't know everyone in the group, then group identity becomes important. Marking yourself, dressing a certain way, behaving a certain way. Individuals in my group do things this way. Individuals in another group do them another way. Um, and we compete with other groups uh, for resources. And so it's very important to identify who's in your group and we favor our group and we don't favor that group. And our group has certain social norms for how we do things. We dress a certain way, we talk a certain way, we prepare our food a certain way, and this helps identify who we are. In fact, our ancestors did them that way. And so, and, and our children are going, or we teach our children to do them this way. So there's a continuity, a conformity in both space and time within our group uh, of how we do things, and anyone who is non-conformist and who deviates we're a little suspicious of, and we want to know why aren't you conforming? Why are you doing things a different way? So the second step then is a norm-based cooperation where conformity is expected and non-conformists are in some way shunned or punished, maybe just by gossip, by having a bad reputation, but in some way they're not doing as well as those who do conform. So now let's shift a little bit to human ontogeny. And in human ontogeny, we want to propose that these same two steps are, they don't have to be, uh, ontogeny does not have to do the same thing that phylogeny does, but in this case, we uh, propose that indeed that is what is happening, that humans have an early stage of this kind of second base, second person morality where they're building relationships with people and they have interactions with individuals. So you'll see two videos in a row of young children helping adults. This adult is a strange adult. They've never met him before. They met him five minutes before this interaction and just um, on a, in, a, in a lab. And so here he drops a clothespin while in the middle of um, pinning up his clothes on the clothesline. And the 18-month-old child hands him the pin, looks to his face, and seems to be satisfied that he has helped him. Here's another of the same type. He's coming with his books now. He bumps into the cabinet. Um, and the little child looks for a second, a little bit perplexed for the moment, 
and then comes over and opens the cabinet. Now watch him look to the face. This is important because he's not just opening the cabinet to see what's in there. He looks up to the face. See? There's what you wanted. And now he can put the uh, magazines in there. Importantly, in both cases, we have control conditions such that in the first one, he throws the clothespin down on the floor on purpose, and there the children very seldom fetch it and give it to him. Or in the case of the cabinet, he um, sets the, he's trying to set the books uh, on top of the cabinet, or he sets the books on top of the cabinet, in which case the child does not just come over and open uh, the cabinet. So children do have a tendency to help. It seems to be in a wider range of circumstances than chimpanzees and um, perhaps more readily, but that um, um, is, uh, they do this quite readily from about 14 to 18 months of age. Now let's look a little at collaboration. Um, here is a little study of children collaborating with one another, and the idea here is going to be that you're going, they're going to be um, lifting a stick up some stairs, and each of them has a reward on their side of the stick. But they have to, there's plexiglass covering the stairs, and so one of them, they have to reach in and get it each through a hole. And we've blocked some of the holes. So one of the child is going to get her reward first. And the question is, do they have a commitment to the other one getting their reward? We have a notion of collaboration that is, um, we have a commitment to do this together, and so uh, that means we have to keep doing it until both of us get our rewards. So you see the first child now reaches in and gets her reward. The second child still can't get hers. She's a little frustrated. The first child didn't really understand the problem and now has come over and seized the problem. But she has her reward in her hand, but she hasn't gone to cash it in yet. You have to cash this reward in. And now she helps the other child. The other child gets hers. And you'll see them both go cash their reward in at these uh, little playing machines. So we ran chimpanzees in the same experiment. And anyone who's ever worked with chimpanzees can tell you the, the result already. When the first one gets their reward, game over. Okay? So he's no commitment to follow through until everybody gets their reward. So again, the, 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 the relationship between collaboration and reward is not one that's conducive to sustaining collaboration over time in chimps. And in humans, you want a partner who's committed to everybody getting theirs in the end, uh, which the children are. Uh, this one is a study in which young children are collaborating together. There are four rewards um, up on the um, apparatus, and when they pull, three of them go to one side and one goes to the other side. Almost all the time, 80-something percent of the time, the child who gets the three hands one over to the child who got the one, and they equalize the rewards. So when they're collaborating, even if by surprise, the rewards come out unequally, the child will equalize. Now, importantly, in a control condition where they work separately, that same sense of fairness to divide them equally does not apply. So in this control condition, you're going to see they pull separately, and one of them gets three, and one of them gets one, and now they don't share because they didn't generate them collaboratively, and there doesn't seem to be any sense that we deserve equal shares the way there was in the first um, condition where they pulled together. So we have argued that um, whereas in many studies in the literature young children appear selfish because that's because they're in a experimental paradigm where the experimenter gives them some candies for example and says share some with your friend. 
then they don't really like to share very much. They have them in their hands, uh, they've got their mind, I'm giving them up, and they're kind of reluctant and they tend to be selfish. But in this situation where the rewards are external, nobody owns them, and they generate them collaboratively, they are very, very egalitarian. And these are three-year-olds, so this is at an age where ch young children are thought to be a bit on the selfish side. Again, we did this study with chimpanzees. Since chimpanzees don't really hand over food, we had to modify it so that they could, if they didn't act, the other individual could take some, and they would have to block them. Um, and um, they only sometimes allowed the other to reach in and get the food. Uh, they usually blocked them. Uh, but they didn't differentiate if they had generated the rewards together in a collaboration or if they had generated the rewards um, uh, individually. It didn't matter. So, so they weren't taking collaboration into account when they uh, uh, divided the spoils, as it were. So that's what young children do below three years of age and, and below, where, again, it's about commitments to individuals, dividing things uh, um, fairly with individuals. It is possible that children were doing this on the basis of some norms or rules they've learned from adults, but we don't think so. We have several lines of evidence that suggest to us that that's not the case, that they're doing it on the basis of individual relationships and being um, uh, egalitarian with a partner or helping the partner and not because of some cultural rules that they've learned. So now the second step is this cultural step with norms. Young children uh, will follow social norms uh, quite early, but we don't think they're following them as social norms per se. So mom says to the child, do this or do that. That may be coming from mom's norms. The child's just responding to an individual imperative from the mother. They're doing it because the mother told them to, not because they see it as a general norm or rule of society that if you're in this group, here's how we do things. Now, when do children get this sort of we-based notion of norms? We have taken as evidence when they don't just follow norms, but they actually enforce them on others. What's the motivation behind correcting others when they're not following the norm? Some kind of group-based motivation to do things this way. So in this study, you'll see that um, the child has previously seen, before the film starts, how this game is played, and the game is called Daxing. And you'll see the puppet come, and the puppet will play the game not the same way that the child understands Daxing to be. The puppet is playing it wrong. And you'll see the child objecting, and quite vociferously uh, telling the, um, the child, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, saying, no, it doesn't work like that at all. And he, he even glances to the original experimenter, who by instructions is looking down and not responding. Uh, and he's saying, no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that at all. And now he's going to teach. The child is going to take the tool that you're supposed to use, put it together, and give it to the puppet. And, and then he says, here, you take this, it goes like this. So the, the, the puppet, by not playing the game by the rules, is not hurting anyone, it's not disrupting the game, it's an individual game, but the child wants to see him doing it the right way. Um, in addition to this study, in which the, it's, the child is marking, I mean, the puppet is saying daxing, we also have one where they just, on this table you play this game, uh, and on this table you play it a different way, um, and the child also uh, uh, enforces that norm when the puppet plays the wrong game on the wrong table. So it's not just about language. Um, here's one other, just so you can get another version of it, of two children playing together. And what we have done is we taught one child one set of rules. They're told you put animals on animals, 
And another child is taught that you put colors on colors. And you'll see how they argue when they, dis when they discover the other child doing it wrong. Okay, so here they go. And the first one is um, putting it on the wrong. He says, no, hedgehog on hedgehog. That's eagle on eagle in German. And the other child is saying, no. And then the other one says, yes. And so they're having a quite emotional, involved argument about what's the right way to play the game. Um, and you will see at one point he says, no, it works like this. Uh, hedgehog with hedgehog, it works like this. And then he's going to say, um, this is the way it works. It goes like this. So it goes like this, right? He says to the other child. And then the first child leaves and says, I'm going to get the man, going to get the experimenter, because uh, he's going to enforce the right. Tattling is an interesting variation on this, where it's not just the norm carrying the force, but let's go get the people who made up the norms. Let's go get the adults. So, we think in ontogeny, we've got the same, roughly same two steps we have hypothesized as being evolutionary steps in the evolution of human cooperation and morality. A second person morality where children help and share and not harm, of course, specific other individuals. They collaborate and share the spoils um, equitably with other individuals. And these we would call natural uh, predispositions. They're not things learned from the culture or from um, uh, adults specifically at this time. They have learned some things from adults, but we think they're mainly coming from their own natural predispositions to treat other people um, by help other people and treat other people e equally. And then only after three years old or so, they start with a norm-based morality where they are following social norms, both of a moral type and just a conventional type, like the game rules that you saw. Uh, they start enforcing social norms, and ultimately they internalize these into guilt and shame, and they begin to regulate their own behavior by the evaluative attitudes as expressed in social norms of adults and others in their culture. So, um, much more is uh, needed. Uh, our our um, account of morality uh, is a very only simply expressed here. There's a lot more complexity, but we just hope that this two-step uh, framework in both phylogeny and ontogeny uh, will provide a context within which uh, future research can uh, help us to answer some of the outstanding questions. Thank you. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>